When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Many of us realise the importance of gardening for wildlife, from growing flowers for pollinators to providing nesting habitats for birds and hedgehogs. There's a range of things we can do in our gardens to help wild species. But is there more we can do? And what potential is there really to help reduce or even reverse declines of wild populations? Hello, I'm Kate. And in today's episode, we hear from Fergus Garrett, head gardener at the wonderful Great Dixter, which is absolutely teeming with wildlife. You'll hear why Great Dixter is such a fantastic habitat for so many species, how Garrett and his team of gardeners work with wildlife, and the specific habitats they've created to help even more species. So we're here at Great Dixter. Um, that's me, Kate Bradbury, with uh, Fergus Garrett, head gardener of the amazing Great Dixter Gardens in Rye in East Sussex. It's, it's mid-August, it's raining, the sky is, is quite grey, but it's still amazingly beautiful and colourful. And so we're here in the barn garden and in front of us is a hexagonal pond. And I think you've got great crested newts in there. Yes, we have. Yes. It's, I mean, it's a really high, high concentration of great crested newts. Um, because if you look around, Kate, I mean, there's all those walls that they can go into as well. I mean, it's a rich habitat, isn't it? Really? Mm. Yeah. So the, the the ponds, the hexagonal pond, is is, is surrounded by um, paving, um, lovely stone slates with walls, and you've got loads of stuff growing out of the walls. You've got lots of Mexican fleabane there, and bits of geranium and fern. So loads of little spaces for the great crested newts to sort of hang out in really yeah i mean the whole the whole space works really really well it's it's all very rich um because you know we're looking at that magnificent building that sits right in the middle of of the of the garden it's a 15th century building with a with a luchens wing added to it and mm-hmm. and if you look at that there's all sorts of nooks and crannies where things can sort of nest and and make a home for themselves and and their feeding place is this garden which is yeah. which is just prolific in in flowers and that's the thing about Great Dixter, isn't it? It's a beautiful garden, but together with the work that you've done, the work um, you know that came before you with Christopher Lloyd, and the amazing surroundings you've got, Great Dixter is known for its incredible wildlife value. Yeah, I, I think the the recent biodiversity audit that we did that took um, just um, uh, over a year and a half. Um, funded by the, the the national lottery. I mean, they were, they've been sort of incredible in in supporting this this, this bit of work. Um, but it showed that the garden is extraordinarily rich. You know, uh, I've been I've been gardening for many many years now, and and 
and, and I went to university to study it and so on. And, and I was always told that that in order to have a wildlife garden, you have to concentrate on natives and you have to do this and you have to do that and so on. And of course, there's an element of truth in, in, in all of that. So you wouldn't, you didn't expect a garden like Dixter that's so intensive and colorful. You know, we garden it, you know, we pull it apart and garden it. You didn't expect something like that to, to have a high wildlife value. In mm. fact, you know, I, when I've spoken at various conferences, always had a sort of a certain coolness from from ecologists that have think well you're a gardener so because you're you're manipulating nature you know you're part of the problem whereas now with with these sort of studies and of course the extraordinary study that Jennifer Owen did in her Leicestershire garden you know and where she wrote she, a book didn't she about that, her garden over 30 year period I that's think? right yes and she found over I think she has something like 750 meter square of garden and she found over 2600 species in there and over that 30 year period so it just and her garden wasn't um wasn't a bramble patch or it wasn't a, a, a nettle patch she it was ornamental she did certain things that that um you know she pruned less she allowed more detritus and so on she was sort of messy around the edges as we as we are um but it was just a safe haven for all those insects and 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 um so you know it, it shows that gardens have a value and 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 Ornamental planting can have a value as long as you do a, a number of a number of things, or don't do a number of things. One of them spray the living daylights out mm -hmm. of your garden, and 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 of course, you know if you if you um, uh, grow a high high percentage of double flowers that haven't got haven't got that source for bees and, and pollinators then you know, your wildlife value will go down but you can still you know you can mix it all up and still have be effective in terms of of harboring um biodiversity and that's what the study at dixter has, has, has shown which means that it, that the systems of a garden can be applied to any small garden or any large garden or or any sort of designed landscape that it can always have a a a positive effect on 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 biodiversity if you break it down why is great dixter rich because when we did the study all those years ago um i was expecting the woodlands to be rich and the meadowlands and the pasture land to be rich and all, all of that but the garden was the richest part of all and 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 the reason for that is because there's diversity here you know, there's water, there are dry areas, there are wet areas, there are shady areas, there are sunny areas, there are nooks and crannies and wood, there's rotting wood, there's, you know, holes in the tiles, etc. All all of that. All in one garden. Now in a in a in a town, all those different that diversity will come from a number of gardens, you know, and it will all add up to something quite quite significant. So it's really exciting, isn't it? It means that we can all play a part in this. We can all play a part in this, definitely. So tell us about the study then that, that we conducted all the years, those years ago, because that's what started this off for you, wasn't it, Fergus? That's right, yeah. Uh, I always thought that Dexter was rich because Christopher Lloyd, who was born here and gardened here all his life, and the Lloyd family, they're very sympathetic to the landscape and to, and to the way they garden. They liked, you know... They allowed an element of of mother nature to come into the garden, so hence we got the meadows that come into the and um, which isn't everybody's cup of tea because some people think, oh, they they look messy, but we don't. You know, it's just glorious with orchids and and so on in those long grass areas. So and Christo had 
a part of his brain open to, to all of this. He admired the great crested newts. He always was excited when he saw slow worms or grass snakes. And, and he would go out the, at night and look for moths and look at butterflies and so on. And we'd always be excited whenever we, um, we saw a woodpecker or, and so on. So, you know, we, were, we weren't detached from it. Um, uh, so I always thought Dixter is, is rich, and, but I thought that was it, you know, that's, that's as much as we need to do. But my, my dear wife, who's an um, ecologist, zoologist, said to me, you really ought to look at the whole picture because you're only doing ad hoc studies on butterflies and so on. Why don't you look at everything so that you know what, what, where, what's there? And look at not just the insects or the pretty little things, study the, the lichens and the bryophytes and the mushrooms and it, the, the whole lot, because there's this thing called the web of life. It all interlinks and so on. And so it, it'll give you a really good idea of, of, of what's here so that if you need to then act and change the management of any, anything, you know how you're affecting the whole, whole system here. Um, because before then, what we were doing, Kate, was that we were thinking, oh, we want to create a, a wildlife bit, so we'd just created another meadow. You know, just thinking that because 90-odd percent of meadows had been lost in the country since the Second World, World War. Let's put another meadow and pat ourselves on the back, and that's job done. You know, that, that, sort, of, that sort of thing. And Amanda would say, well, why create another meadow? Do you need another meadow? You haven't you got enough meadows? Is there another habitat you should be creating? You don't even know what's rare around you that you could be supporting or should be supporting or what you, sh you should be increasing. So have a slightly more intelligent approach to this so that you can just pick and choose how you go about managing it. So, and I thought, well, great. So I, I went to the Heritage Lottery and they funded all these specialists to come in and to look at everything from mosses, liverworts, to moths, butterflies, to, to dragonflies, to beetles, to wasps, etc. All The whole lot we, we looked at. And it was a one-year study of, 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 of these specialists coming in and looking at the whole estate from the woodlands right the way through the to the garden and the, and the buildings. And then the results came out and the results were just extraordinary. You know, in fact, um, our lead ecologist, Andy Phillips, said that, um, that uh, really Great Dixie should be designated a, a local wildlife site, site or, a, 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 or a local wildlife reserve. He said it's so rich, it's one of the richest places that he's, he's, he's surveyed. And because it's complex and it's diverse, and, and in fact, it's changed the way he's looked, he's looked at gardens because he, he, you know, part of him regarded gardens as being quite sterile because because they can be, can't they? Because they get the, the, the living daylight sprayed out of them and everything's sort of tidied up and so on. So, and, and now he comes into here and says, this is what I call a garden. And it's just dripping with all sorts of interesting things. And, and, and there are massive benefits of that. There are massive holistic benefits for us because we know we're sharing the, the space with, with life, you know, that it's not just a sterile picture that we're looking at. It's not just about color. It's about life within this garden. So that goes deep down in, in, in all of us and does something to you as a gardener. Um, but also the, and the benefits of this is that because we're not spraying all the insects or anything, we stopped spraying all those years ago, we find that we've got enough predators to, to, to feed off the pests. So we don't even have to, you know, have to worry about 
oh, what are we going to do with the aphids? And what are we going to do with this? Because th we know that there's some sort of, of a balance there. And it's not always perfect because slugs will eat our dahlias and so on and all those sort of things. And we try and do the best we can by putting wool around it or, or and, and, and so on. And, um, but, you know, so certain things get, get hit. But on the whole, we can we can create a beautiful, aesthetic, colourful, dynamic garden like this and still have all, those, all that life with it as, as well. That's the beauty of wildlife gardening, isn't it? Like once you've got that ecosystem in place, everything sort of looks after itself and it just makes it easier and just also just gives you more time to just sit and enjoy it really. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right, Kate. I mean, it doesn't sort of happen overnight, does it? You have no. to sort of hold your nerve for a bit. And, and, and there, is, there are sort of imbalances out there all the time. But it sort of looks after itself. But you sort of tend to be slightly more relaxed about things as, as, as well. And, you know, it's just, just enjoying the whole sort of the whole microcosm of life that, that shares that space with you. And... and um, and also it makes that journey from A to B so much more interesting because you're not just thinking, you know, you're not just thinking, oh, there's another little fly. Well, that little mm -hmm. fly is one of, the, one of the 270 solitary bees that exists in the UK and, and so on. And it's probably got something attached to its backside that it's taken down into a, you know, little hole in the, in the ground, you know, and all of that. So it's just, there's a whole, it's just fascinating, the life with each of these, these things. And setting a moth trap, for instance, you know, uh, you, you, we're in the garden during the day. Of course, we do visit at night and we're part of it at night. But when you set a moth trap and where they come to the, come to the light. So, yeah, a moth trap is a box, essentially, with, with a, a very high-powered light, isn't it? And that, yeah. the, the light attracts the moths and then they fall into the box and it's all very safe and, and you leave little egg boxes in the box for the, for the moths to shelter under there and they spend the night there and then you, you look at them in the morning with glee and then, and then set them free. So it's not a, a sort of trap as such for those uh, worried that we're catching moths. It's, no. it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a means to, to look at the moths and monitor the moths um, and then... And then set them on their way. But yes. and, and, and yeah, and, and we're very careful that we don't do it too often. And because also what happens is that the the hornets and the and the and the and the um, the birds get they get accustomed to the the moth mm -hmm. moth trap and they go in there and eat the moth. So we we just do it now and again to just to see what's what's out there. And the moths are released under under bushes and things um, later on in, in the morning. We try and get there really early morning, but it gives you an account of what's flying around. And um, you know, suddenly you come to this box that's been set overnight, and you go into and look at these egg cartons, and there's hundreds of really extraordinarily camouflaged, colourful things with the most amazing names as well attached to them. And it just shows you, you just think, wow, all this stuff is is flying around at night, and I'm not even aware of it, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a really brilliant feeling. Um, but the main thing is, is that you can create a colourful, ornamental garden that has exotic plants in it and, and non-native plants in it that rub shoulders with natives um, and which will support biodiversity. So gardeners can, can play their part. You know, um, that doesn't mean we start going out into sort of the wild land beyond the garden and start planting it with exotics. We're not doing that, but it just it gives you a feeling that you don't need to be ashamed to be a gardener in order to have, you know, support life. And, and, and I think the most important thing is that that you gain a bit of knowledge, you know, because there's, there, are sort of, there, are, there are sort of things that we think are good when they're not good, you know, all the time. Yeah.
Should we go and have a look at the gardens? Yep. Where are you? Where, where should we go first? Um, should we go to the long border? Yes. Yeah, let's go to the long border. Lovely. And um, and it's not a straightforward thing, this is it really? Because if you look at honeybees, for instance, mm. and um, everybody who's you know people make a beeline for honeybees and say ah oh, we're going to create a wildlife garden and in that we need pollinators and so we're going to put a beehive <laughs> and um well it's, it's not straightforward as that because um a lot of these bees these uh, these bees used in honey production are non-native and also they're they sort of are, they are aggressive and they and very efficient in the way that they 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 um, harvest the pollen, so they can squeeze out other some of the solitary bees that belong to this to the area. As well as that, they're very inefficient in the way that they pollinate because they they sort of wrap the pollen up in this sort of I don't know this slime and stick it to their legs rather than collecting dry pollen. So they're not as effective as pollinators as as yeah, much. They uh, don't drop as much on the flowers, yeah, do they? Yeah. So so you know, it's, but everybody makes a beeline for sorry the pun um, <laughs> a beeline for honeybees to be the pollinators, whereas that doesn't. It's not necessarily the case. So, well, a lot of people don't realise. I mean, honeybees they get they get awful lot of media attention, an awful lot of media attention. And um, and what, what a lot of people don't realise is is that you know there's 270 species of, of bee um, in the British Isles, and one of them is the honeybee. We've got 24 bumblebees, and the rest are solitary bees. So the diversity of bees is so much greater than the honeybee alone. And I'll just find, I love honeybees, but I just find so many more. Sure. Um, you know, interesting in my garden. Yeah, I, th I think it's that there's it's, it's, the thing is diversity. You know, having that sort of having the that. aim is to just get as many bees as possible yeah. using using your space. Well, that's my aim anyway. Yeah. So and uh, for us, um, I, we're a big garden. We're six acres, so we can have a lot of diversity. But I think you can still have diversity in a small garden. I mean, a little bit of water helps, doesn't it, for things to, you know, a little bit of, of detritus helps and, and maybe a, um, a, a, a rotting log stack tucked away around the back, you know, to, uh, would help. Not cutting down everything at once helps, doesn't it? And, and, and when you're creating walls or whatever, making sure that there are little holes and nooks and crannies for things to go and, um, you know, make, build a home in, that, that's, that's important as, as well. And then, of course, there are things out there that the people can get that are insect hotels, for instance, that they can get from a garden centre or, or you, can, you can buy nesting boxes or what's specific for, for, you know, swift boxes, for instance. And, and you can even buy bricks that can be put into a wall that are, that are, that are good for insects and, and so on. They've got the specific holes in them or you can just drill holes in something to allow sort of nesting sites. So with a little bit of info, we can actually do so much more so that our, Every space counts in, in all of this. And um, I mean, we're just walking past a, a muddy pit, bit here where the grass has been worn. And there's and a beautiful blackbird there eating your mulberries. That's, that's right. And, and look at the trunk of the mulberry trees. I mean, it's just it's lots of little nooks and crannies for things to nest in there. But, you know, we don't even repair some of the paths. We don't re-turf these areas because we find that this compact ground is really good for some of the mining bees that go, mm. that go, go into them, you know. Um, 
So this is the beautiful long border and I can see lots of daylilies, I can see canna lilies, I can see um, cardoons, salvias, veronica, dahlias. There's so much here. Fennel, there's so much fennel. It's beautiful. So tell us about the long border, Fergus. Well, it's a mixed border. So it's got, it's all back by a hedge, but um, it's got... Um, trees and shrubs and perennials and annuals and self-sowing biennials and climbers all mixed in together and um and it's it's rich in flowers as you can see here you know it's, it's from all the color that you see in, in in this wet august day to the stuff that if you came here in february there'll be hellebores and snowdrops in flower then if you came here in in march there'll be early daffodils and something else in flower and then then you go to um forget-me-nots and alliums and all those sort of things and the gladioli come and all the spring flowers and so on so there's flush after flush after flush of plants that come and t t so there's a long season of flower and if you came here in in october there'll still be things in flower so that is important because it just means that there there's a, a long season of food source in here. Mm -hmm. And as well as that, the structures are so so different. You know, they've got th the shrubs that people, things can nest into and, and, and so on. And there's element, also important, I think, is that there's an element of disturbance in there because maybe I would say about a tenth of the border is dug up twice a year twice a year to change over the bedding and um and we grow the stuff ourselves you know we sow the seed or take cuttings and pot it on and plant it out and when we take it out and it's finished we then compost it and that compost goes into that sort of the cycle of compost that we use through the garden so it's a very nice sort of closed circuit there um but the disturbance the trauma and disturbance is also important because it, uh, that open ground so it's all about being you know dynamic and open because um I think you can have the best habitat, but if you don't have that dynamic disturbance element to it, then the biodiversity will plateau out. So you need change. And that's why it was good in the old landscape when you had large herbivores that were disturbing the ground and, and, and so on. This is, and that's why it's good when a cliff collapses and then you've got a bare ground that's opened up so that things can go and um, nest in there and so on. So that element of disturbing, which is the act of gardening, is a positive thing as, as, as well, rather than something that's settled and closed. And so we... Um, we garden this for a long season. We garden it for it to, to be a, a magnificent, colourful dis display. There are um, sort of wildish plants in there, including wild native plants like cow parsley and so on, but it has a very informal feel to it. Um, and then it's got a, pay, a, a path next to it and short grass and the meadows are right next to that. And then the meadows then go away to scrub and then to, to woodland. So it's all within, all that diversity is within close proximity to, to, to one another. So it's, very, it's, very, it's a very rich border visually and it's rich for biodiversity. So tell us about the meadows then, Fergus, because we, we're standing here and, you know, as you say, we've got this beautiful ornamental border on the left. We've got a path, we've got a little bit of um, um, short grass here, and then it yeah. just goes into this amazing meadow for almost as far as the eye can see. Yeah, they're really terrific, the meadows at Dixter. Incidentally, you know, we see, we've seen a, a few sort of yellow vetches here, and we've got the longhorn bee at Dixter, <gasps> uh, which is feeding off these, which is, you know, it's not a sort of common thing at all. Not on a day like today, uh, though, no. sadly. <laughs> but actually, the interesting thing is that it's not just on the meadow, but it was it was spotted feeding on the long border, on a lateris grandiflorus on the long border as well. So, 
you know, the things do cross over to, to, to non-native stuff. But the meadows, I think, you know, they, they were, I mean, they were throughout the countryside around us, these long grass areas, for, they were hay meadows. And, um, and so many of them have been lost, although new ones have been created as well, because, um, because farming has intensified and, you know, people use more silage, etc. all of that, and, and some other sort of, uh, with the sprays that have come in as well. So we've, we've sort of lost that habit, habitat. And what that pr habitat provided was this long period of, 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 of flowers for all those insects that were, and, and the mammals and, and, and everything else. So with us, within the garden, um, they're slightly more ornamental than the long grass areas outside the garden. Um, the season starts with, with snowdrops and crocuses and then goes on to daffodils and then it goes on to things like meadow cranes bills. There's a whole range of orchids that are in there from the early purple orchid to the tway blade and the green winged and, and the common spotted. And it just carries, you know, then it just goes on, dyes green weed flowers, the gnat weeds flower and so on amongst the grasses. And then we get to this moment in, in August where it's just a few flowers in here, predominantly knapweed with bits of of hay rattle in here with with hawk spits and and so on it still looks very very nice but before long we'll cut it we'll wait for the orchids to ripen their seed and we'll cut it and we'll take all the hay away and so when when will the orchids ripen their seed what what sort of time are we looking at for that usually usually um second third week of August, but it may be later this year because it's been such a cool year and such a wet year. Well, everything's and been so late this year, hasn't it? It has, yes, it has. And you know, look at the dyer's greenweed hasn't even ripened its, its seed there. So I think essentially what we're doing is that for every patch of meadow, we're, we're waiting until the latest flowering, most important plant has ripened its seed. So if that dyer's greenweed ripens it in, the, in September, we'll wait until September before we cut it. And when we cut it, we cut it right down to the ground and take all the clippings off so that the self-sowers can then you know can germinate and be free and then just for diversity Kate will leave certain areas uncut you know like up against the hedge line or around some of these sort of habitat piles so that so that we again create a diversity of sward and that becomes a safe haven for all the mammals that run into there and so on and all the all the insects and and so on and then the cycle start, continues again. You know, we sort of so they're cut on a regular basis. Otherwise, if we didn't cut these areas, that you know, that we'd have scrub. Yeah, which is important, but not in these ornamental um, areas. It's so lovely to see this on such a, a much bigger scale because I, I've got a very small 40-foot garden, which I, you know, have, have as a, a large portion of which is meadow. And I too leave, you know, little, a little bit around my pond and completely uncut. So, so that, you know, in, in winter, um, you know, the wildlife that, that was using the meadow can potentially sort of, you know, knuckle on yeah. down under, under the scrub. And it's, it's really important um, when you cut things and when you, when you, take things away essentially that you do make sure that any wildlife that's still using that habitat the frogs and caterpillars yeah. and anything like that still has a little buffer zone so it's really it's really lovely that, yes. that you're doing that yeah i think it's just creating those different habitats and when you look at the bigger picture um throughout the country look at just just look at all those roadside verges that we could have as long grass areas i don't mean those areas where you need to see 
oncoming traffic, of course, cut those because long grass next to short, the short grass next to long grass is important as well. It's a good habitat. It is. So having that diversity. So let's cut those areas that, that need us to have clear sight lines, but then leave those areas, those other areas uncut and leave some areas to go into, um, go into scrub and, and woodland as well. So we have that diversity rather than having to cut everything down, right down, right down to the ground. And I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of hectares of, of, of roadside verge that can be use, utilized. And also there's hundreds of thousands of hectares of garden that can add up to something as well. And, and, and then there's, there's hundreds of thousands of hectares of urban areas that can actually be significant as well. And if you add all of those up, now all of that stuff is outside the food production zone. You could actually make a real difference with all of those as a network going through the whole country. So, you know, it's, it's there. It's within our reach to do something about it. But it needs, you know, it needs politicians and, and ecologists and conservation groups and, and planners, landscape architects, councils, Volunteer and the will groups. of the people as everybody, well. Everybody, everybody, and the people, everybody needs to to work together on this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, we need to do it twenty years ago, but you know, failing that, you know, we need to start tomorrow. Um, I just wonder how many species would be in decline if we utilised our our green spaces more. And that's twenty two million gardens. That's our park spaces, and like you say, all of our road verges and and urban spaces. We could do so much. Yes. And just link everything together and make these wonderful corridors across across the country. And you know, Kate, don't you? Because you don't have to, it doesn't mean you have to turn everything into long grass. No. It doesn't mean you have to plant trees everywhere. It's just but taking that sort of intelligent approach to it to say, actually, that's, you know, we need to play football or, or throw a frisbee on that bit of grass. That's recreation. That's fine. But over there, we can have it long. In that you corner. Know, in that yeah. corner where nobody's, you know, we can have it long and let's, let's train our new new gardeners to actually our, our public realm gardeners to be aware of how to manage those spaces because let's just start saying to people um, just because it's less long doesn't mean left long doesn't mean it's it's a mess it's actually a really important habitat mm-hmm. you know and 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 actually those wildlife areas doesn't they don't need to be outside of the town on city or village uh, in the countryside that a lot of these things are adapted to be in sharing the ground with us you know let's bring everything in and just do something very um effective together and and gardens will play a part in in all all of that because you know the other thing is this um you know we've got this massive habitat pile in in front of you which is all these not everybody's got space for that you've got ancient woodlands just down just a few hundred yards away from that not everybody's got ancient woodlands we've got big areas of 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 bramble at the bottom of the of the of the fields there not everybody's got the ability to do that as well but but you see but in our design spaces we can do something really clever and effective that that still allows people to use it um without you know without and uh, without harming the um, biodiversity that's there so tell me more about this um this habitat pile fergus because this is one of my favorite parts of great dixter um so we're standing here we're looking at um an enormous pile of logs really with some nettles and teasels and um hogweed growing around it um which is then surrounded by meadow and um and fruit trees so tell me more about that well it all sort of came about really when i was um 
uh, when when the the entomologists were walking around looking at the insects, and I had I got my own wood pile down at the bottom where I just cut a, f a few bits of, of fallen timber that that I can put into a wood burning stove. You know, I haven't um, done that for a while, but but and they found they found an interesting beetle on that wood pile, and they said to me, "Do you mind not?" burning that wood for this winter because we need to look at what's happening with this with this beetle so that was my my firewood gone for the season so <laughs> i thought well actually if a beetle's making itself at home here and it wasn't a it wasn't a common thing you know if it's making this i want to put some more patches of 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 dead or dying wood and you know we prune a lot in this garden and we also have big trees and they use lose limbs and so on and we used to burn all of that and i used to hate doing that although everybody loves a fire don't they but i used to hate doing that because i never knew whether there were slow worms in there or whatever you know so i thought i'm gonna i'm gonna build something that looks like a Romanian haystack, you know, and, and I had this brilliant kid who was helping, helping me. He was trained in arch architecture. His name is Blaise Baverstock, and he had a really great name as well. And he had an eye for design as well. So I drew him out and uh, what I wanted. And he, in turn, drew out two or three options of different shapes that we could have. But this is the one that we, we chose. And it basically it resembles a large haystack. It's about um, 20 feet across and it was about 20 feet high and it's got poles driven into the ground and all the brushwood and, and, and bits of logs and whatever are just beautifully arranged right the way around it in this sort of circular pattern and it makes a very nice architectural feature. And you get birds nesting in there in spring don't you? Yes we get birds in there but also you know um, you know, I, I think it's a safe place for hedgehogs to go where they can escape the badgers, you know, and it's got, it's, it'll have, um, as it rots, it'll be a good place for, for um, slow worms and grass snakes. It's got long grass ar around it. And of course, you know, our, our um, entomologists were really excited because they said, look, all the detritivores are in there, you know, and there's a s shady side and a sunny side and all the spiders are in there looking at, going after the detritivores and so on. So they've it's again gives us diversity but you can do the same sort of thing by just having a a, a log wall you know putting logs on in, in a in a garden that would yeah. do the same sort of thing or an open compost heap on a, a much smaller scale yes it would do the same sort of thing but they look beautiful they look amazing yeah, they? They i look, love them I they love look them. slightly <laughs> medieval you know they look like something ready for guy fawkes yes. you know um but i i i think um yes again it's it all adds down, it c comes down to diversity, you know. Right, where are we going next? Well, I'm just going to, we're just going to take a walk down here because it's, a, we're going to go back in the garden, but I just want to... So we're going through a gate, we're actually leaving the garden now, Yeah, we're we? going into the field that was, that's just below us. And this field was, um, was, uh, was grazed by sheep and, and, and it was predominantly grasses and we turned it into a meadow and I put these oak beams so people can sit in it. But the interesting thing is also is, is, is that, you know, if you look down, there's a tree, the tree, the woods are just beyond us. And then there's this big bramble patch, this sort of edge, that woodland edge effect is really mm. quite important. So I think it's, and when you look out into the countryside, what you see is hedge, and then woodland, grassland areas are separate from that. There's no sort of integration of the, of the, of that where where you've got that scrub developing. And I think that scrub layer is very important. It's a very rich 
part. And so, so again, another thing, where possible, let's allow those brambles and nettles to develop in those patches. I'm not saying in the garden. I'm not saying right next to where people are playing football or whatever, but where possible, if it allows, let them, because they're very rich, rich areas. Because the woodland edge, which that is, is one of the areas that has come under pressure in, in, in throughout the countryside. And actually, when you then talk about gardens, what are gardens? They're woodland edge as well, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're creating, and if that's a very rich habitat, they call it an ecotone. I think you would know better than I, I do. But um, if that's a very rich habitat with all the native plants, imagine the woodland edge with all those exotics and the diversity of habitats that you have in a garden situation. It's it's the perfect storm to create something really rich. It's beautiful. And you can really see, just standing here at the top of the meadow, you can see the meadow, you can see the huge bank of brambles, and then that goes into the woodland. And you can just imagine all the different things that are living in the meadow, in the brambles, in the woodland, and how those habitats interact with each other and how the wildlife that lives among them interacts as well. It's raining quite a bit now, Fergus. Yes, so yeah, hope I know, you're taking yeah. me what somewhere a, what a bit great, drier. What a great August, <laughs> August day, eh? It's just so amazing how on such a wet, miserable August day, the sun's barely creeping through the clouds there. But there's so much colour on that long border. All yeah. the pinks and the purples and the yellows all working together with the greens. And you wouldn't necessarily think that a really ornamental border would go hand in hand with a very wild meadow. But it does, it looks gorgeous. And I, I think partly because there's that moan strip between them, so that the meadow is defined. Yes. Yeah. And and if you think in terms of a food source, the meadow hands over the baton to the border now because the meadow is going brown. Yes. So as as the flowers dry up, the border is taken over because they're still full of flowers. Because exotics obviously extend the season of colour. Yes. For us and pollen and nectar for the. Um, for the pollinators sure i mean i and um, what what we do is we mix, mix natives and exotics together you know which is which is nice i mean you can't see the cow parsley now because it's all finished but early on the season the whole thing is floating in cow parsley in fact that that's that family of of you know the carrot family is very important for for pollinators because there's a very nice landing pad that they can land on mm. and here you can see the bronze fennel and we don't tend to have many embellifers in gardens, do we? I think I think they're a much overlooked um, type of flower in gardens. We need more of wild. them. Because <laughs> they look wild. Because they look wild <laughs> and people think they're weeds. Uh, but, you know, this, let's go through this archway. And... So we're just heading through a beautiful yew arch right now, leaving the long border, leaving those meadows behind and the ancient woodland. And what have we got up here? Oh, yes, it's something. It's just so, all sort of closed in with all this vegetation. There are, there are roses that are overflowing onto the paths, hydrangeas in flower now. And we're actually uh, brushing past the plants as we walk along this path, aren't we? And ducking, yes. ducking under the, uh, the leaves here, which is all dripping with rainwater. And there, look, there's big patches of willow herb that we've left. You know, probably, we'll probably get a complaint about that in, in due course. But, you know, um, and you see willow herb comes into our planting, as you can see here as, as well. 
So despite all your credentials for helping wildlife, you, you still do get complaints then about letting weeds grow in your borders. Yes, I think because people look at them as as weeds. I mean, look at it. If you look at if you look at the borders now, I would say ninety nine percent of the plants are not can, are ornamental and so on. But then you, we do allow the odd, you know, whether it's cow parsley or willow herb or something else in there. And some people hate teasels as well. And they, you know, they're used to gardens being so much more sterile this mm. is a wildish garden i mean it's it's like this wild painting of color and form and it's very immersive like you just said we have to brush through all the all the stuff and and that takes a bit of getting used to you know and some people will never get used to it but it's just i think it's um in many ways it's 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 joyous um, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to garden like this. Everybody can, that's the beauty of it. They can all garden in different ways yeah. and it will all, you know, add up to something interesting. Um, but we still get people who, who we do, we get people who complain about the meadows now because they've gone brown. And that's partly our fault because we, we need to really say to people, look, our grass is brown because we're waiting for the orchids on the orchid seeds to, to ripen. They'll ripen towards the end of August. Then we'll cut all the grass. It'll look brown for a few weeks and it'll green up again. And this is the cycle of a meadow. So we just need to educate people mm. um, or inform people a bit more on, on all, all of this as well. I mean, you don't get any problems when, when those meadows are looking extraordinary as a sort of tapestry of pinks and yellows and blues and so on when all those orchids and things are flowering and it's just also they're humming with insects the noise is is deafening and that's an early summer isn't that sort of june time? that's june time so it's you know and you don't get any complaints when when it's daffodil and snake said fertility and so on it's just this moment now where it's they've gone brown but we have to hold our nerve because if we cut that meadow prematurely and didn't allow seeds to ripen. I think gradually over the years, the meadow wouldn't be as rich in flowers as it mm. is now. So, and also there will be caterpillars and frogs that will still be using the meadow now. Sure, I think um, that's that's important. Yeah, this, it's an important habitat, isn't it? It's, yeah. an important, it's an important part of the cycle. And, you know, things... It, it's a life and death thing, isn't it? I mean, things can't look that rich and beautiful in June forever. Sure. It has its June moment, it has its August moment. And as gardeners and as wildlife lovers, you know, and, and people who want to help wildlife, want to do more for diversity in our gardens, we need to accept that every month can't be June. Yes. Yeah. I wish yeah. that it could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what's this what's this border called well, then? This, 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 this is a sort of a jump mad jumble of plants, isn't it? But it, this is actually a nursery stock bed. Ah. where we would dig up these geraniums and split the plants and sell them down in our nursery. So all these areas that we're in now are, are stock bits for the nursery. And so we've got verbascums that would collect seed from, other verbascums that would take root cuttings from, salvias that would take cuttings from, geraniums that we would split, yarrows that we would split as well. So that we're then that then gets they get potted up and sold down at that from the bottom of the garden. And that helps to support the whole the enterprise. So, um, so these are... Th uh, informal nursery areas and you can see the production is not in straight lines and it's, it's, there's nothing sterile about it as well and they're just just littered with 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 self-sowers that are that are amongst them from evening primroses to verbascums to hollyhocks to to the the the, the tall white fleabane to to all of those to lithrum as as, as well so it looks 
informal and part of the garden. It looks wild and beautiful. Yeah. So look, we go through another archway and we'll just, you know, come up to the um, a bedding patch that we've just changed over. These are rudbeckias that we've put in. They're going to take a bit of time to get, get going, but there's seeds that we've grown ourselves and, and there were lychnus rose campion here before. It's a bit of meadow beyond, beyond that. So this will give us flowers in September, October into November. Again, that prolongs the season as well. And will well. you use those in the, in, the, in the borders or will you leave them here? No, they'll, they'll be just left, left here as ornamental. And once they finish, they're annual rudbeckias. We'll compost them and mm. then put something else here that we're already growing from seed down, down in the nursery. So, so um, And then you can see these, these topiary birds ah. are, are, are peacocks. Well, they, originally they were a medley of birds, but they've all been clipped into the same shape as a, um, as a, as a peacock. So you can see how shaggy they are because it, it, before long we'll start cutting these. So it, all around us we've, we've got these little, these yew hedges and these yew topiaries. Yes. Um, and these little peacocks dotting the, the, the landscape, really. Yeah, yeah. This, so again, um, you could look at this and say, Oh, it's so manicured and managed by by humans having these these bushes shaped into put into shapes. But you know, I don't mind that. I don't mind the formal element of Dixter. Not everything has to be wild and informal. In fact, the the formal and the informal go quite well together with us because it gives us the backbone uh, and the, the structure within which we can have this sort of wildish planting. Well, I think that's really beautiful. I think you know, having the formal and the informal together. Um, has a really wonderful effect. Look here, I've just found a bumblebee using a teasel as an umbrella. Um, this poor thing looks absolutely soaked. Oh, how clever of you to see that, actually. <laughs> it's perched right underneath the teasel, isn't it? That's amazing. I mean, that's what you do, isn't it? You know, if you got caught in a rain shower, you would find the nearest thing to shelter under. And this yeah. poor bumblebee absolutely drowned rats. She is. Yeah. And she's just hiding into this teasel flower. Yeah. Until yeah. she dries off. So where next? So we're going to go into the high garden area, which has got sort of, um, again, it's got narrow borders, but beyond that, there are stock beds. And um, you can see there are trees surrounding, but there's just a lot of colourful dahlias and cosmos. And, they're, you know, plants that everybody would grow, hollyhocks in, in full flower. There's ornamental grasses as well. There's a real mixture of plants. And I think that is also important as, as well. And, and wild carrot. Look at that. Just self-sown carrot. Looking gorgeous. absolutely gorgeous here with this lacy flowers. So, so I think the thing is, there is so much at Dixter. There's so much diversity. It's not just one season. It doesn't just finish with roses. You know, you could have a rose garden that, yeah, that you spray the living daylights out of, so it looks beautiful, but it's only one season, isn't it? This has got sort of a, such a long season. And the sun's finally starting to come out, which is yes. a very happy thing indeed. Rather frightening for August. <laughs> yeah. So there are lilies and phloxes and see some of those sort of insects flying about already, braving the weather and flying, flying about. And we get weeds as well. You know, we've got bindweed. We don't let it go everywhere, the bindweed. So we just pick it by hand. As you're we doing can, now. Yeah, and just, just take it off. So just to keep on top of it. Sometimes it gets on top of us. But so we just, we take this sort of soft approach 
to it. Um, so you don't use any weed killers or no. pesticides at all? No, we don't. No, we, we, we don't. We use, we use I th the only thing we, we use is we put wool around our dahlias and those sort of things. And then we'll use an organic slug pellet just once or twice. That's, that's, that's it. But we're even looking at sque squeezing that out. Other than that, there's nothing that goes onto these plants. We will use fertilizer in the garden organic fertilizer but not everywhere I, I should think only in the bedding area so about 10-15% 10, 10, of the garden gets pelleted chicken poo for instance you mm -hmm. know just a handful of, of that around, around the plant and sometimes when we've got an old tired rose or something um, we may put fish blood and bone around it or we may if we're planting a new new shrub we may put a bit of bone meal underneath it but that's it you know not whole throughout the whole garden so now we're not organic. We're not. We're not trying to be organic, but we're just trying to do as as little of that stuff as possible. And it's working, isn't it? <laughs> it's really working. And we use we compost a lot. We compost everything. We're even composting our our, our branches. Um, that those you know the prunings that we have. If they don't go onto the habitat pile, they go onto the compost heap, and within two or three years they rotted down, and we we put that back into the into, into the garden, predominantly in the in the in the vegetable garden, we use our, our homemade compost. And um, I love the wild look. I just love everything, just looking so windswept and yes. And we've had certainly had the wind to sweep it. I think it's because we're this sort of large, overblown cottage garden, if you like. You know, that's just full of stuff, close to the edges to the paths and it's this very immersive experience at Dixter. All you need, you know, a few mile an hour of wind and it's, it comes crashing, crashing down. Um, but it's good that you, you don't, you know, you haven't taken the plants out, you know, when no. things are a little bit windswept, um, then, you know, they, um, you leave them and you leave yeah. them to, to lean and you leave them to, you know, look a bit look a bit messy if you like but I, I think there's beauty in that I think it looks really wonderful yeah it's it's I mean it's been that sort of year hasn't it and if we went through a year where we didn't have as much things would be more upright and it's just that's just gardening that's the way it um that's the way it is we can't even sit down on this seat actually Kate because it's soaking wet you know <laughs> it's but a very I've, nice seat though yeah it is it's from it's, it's from our own own wood so that's another thing that we're trying to do is use our, our own material as much as possible and um and also we recycled um old wood and things we'll use old fence posts reuse them again and that in itself creates a habitat because things bore into it and mm. and use it as a as a as a home right so here we are at the front of the house the impressive 15th century house that um everybody sees as they first enter Great Dixter. Yes, it's a marvellous building, isn't it? It's an old, old building. And the fact that it's old it means that there are lots of nesting places for, for bats and those sort of things and all sorts of um, places where bees can... But even if you have a modern building, you can make it porous. Not porous to the weather, but you can make it open to, for all these things. You know, there are, there's so much out there available for you to attach to your building. And I think also important that, that part of that planning process should in, involve an, uh, making buildings rich for biodiversity as well. It won't cost much to do that, um, but it would just so that everything we build is green and as can, can support life. Yeah. You know, not just human life, but support life 
And um, so, so, what have you got living in the house? What's 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 which bird? Have you got birds nesting? We've got birds nesting. We've got bats. We've got uh, we've got um, um, solitary bees. All sorts of things in, in there. Oh, and, and we can see swallows just yeah, flying swallows around, around the, the house now. Sw swifts. Um, we put some swift boxes up around the back. I don't know if they've come, but we suddenly are hearing swifts around. And so, isn't it lovely to have a sort of a, a living building as, as well? And um, a wildlife house as well yeah, as wildlife a wildlife house. garden. And, you know, it's not, we're, we're, in, we're in East Sussex here, but you can do that throughout the world in wherever area you are. You know, you just need that information in order to do the right thing. You know, just so, you know, I was always... Um, that we uh, ecologists and horticulturalists and and architects, they should all work together in order to go for push forward because it's all within our capability to do that. Imagine if every new built house had bird boxes put in as standard. Yes, and every bus stop had a green roof or or a insect hotel, and every bike rack um, did the did the did the same as as well. And every town and and, and city had um, sustainable urban drainage systems and 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 um, good planting. And and along with that, all the the new the new generation of parks people and the maintenance that we have in these towns and cities were opened their minds were open to to biodiversity and sustainability and and all of that we could really we could it's just about channeling our energies and our money to doing the right thing you know and we can do we can do that you know it's all within our it's about the way we we write how these places are going to be managed and looked after we can put it all down in the contracts as well and there's some brilliant people out there that are doing it already you know uh, john little of the grass roof company for instance he's doing this sort of work left right and center richard scott up in up in as part of the eden project is doing it in liverpool with all those extraordinary community groups are building these amazing gardens and community gardens and meeting spaces and so on as well you know we're a large prestigious historic garden but it, it doesn't need to be exclusive to us it can be for everybody to make use of this yeah, you can do you can do all of these things on a much smaller scale. Just putting a bee hotel up on your house makes your house porous. Just putting up one bird box, you know, can can make a huge difference. If you put up a bird box, if your neighbours put up a bird box, we can all make a difference little by little. But using Great Dixter as an example, seeing all the amazing things you've done here, it's incredibly inspiring. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>